Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis. It's a Brother, Brother podcast. Today, we're talking Manchester. Remember that? You can now listen to episodes on our brand new Brother Pod app, which also gives you access to additional new music, music news, clips, and content that we curate for each episode. It's also a place where you can interact with us directly through the TalkBack feature. Ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search BrotherPod in the App Store to download on your mobile device. As always, you can learn more about the pod at BrotherPod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's go back to the late 80s and talk Madchester. Brother number three, Christian Lewis, with uh, brother number one, Wyndham Lewis, and uh, today I think we're going to be talking about Madchester, um, a scene from the late '80s and early '90s. Um, I'm going to be pretty deferential here to uh, to older brother Wyndham, um, who was actually there and able to uh, enjoy some of this experience while I was busy being born. Um, so, Wyndham, could you could you? set this up for us and tell us a little bit about, you know, the, the sort of origins of, uh, of this genre? Absolutely. And then remind me to come back and tell you a little story about how you were instrumental in my enjoying this particular oh, good, yeah. period. Um, so just to set the table, you know, the uh, mid-80s in Manchester were a busy time. Um, you know, the Buzzcocks had, you know, uh, tipped off the late 70s. Uh, Joy Division forms, um, unravels, uh, the Smiths arise, the Fall arises. New Order f- comes from the ashes of, of Joy Division, well documented on this particular show. And, and Factory Records comes into existence with its Looney Tunes owner, Tony Wilson. A uh, do you know the Tony old, Wilson's War. Yeah, you know the old joke about, you know... How do you know uh, someone went to, I'll do it in this point, Cambridge? How? They tell you. Uh, Tony Wilson was a Cambridge-educated uh, guy who, who was very partial to new music and really you know, was uh, instrumental in introducing it uh, to the northern part of the country. He hosted a show on Granada Television. And um, you know he became friendly with... Guys in Joy Division, um, and together they forged a record label called Factory Records, which was fairly, um, you know, sort of at the vanguard in terms of the business because it was a uh, born on a handshake deal, and Tony Wilson sort of went halvesies with the artists, which uh, later uh, allowed the members of New Order, having collected some of the uh, proceeds, unusually from a record label. Um, to buy into the Hacienda, along with Tony Wilson, the most probably uh, iconic nightclub in the history of England. Um, all of this is a, a somewhat swirling way to get to where we're going, but at the same time this was happening in uh, Manchester, 
a bunch of a bunch of DJs from England sort of Swir- swirling like the light is coming into your uh, quarter sized pupils is that into right? my kaleidoscopic uh, <laughs> yeah. sense of vision um, as it did in in uh, 1989 in an airplane hangar somewhere <laughs> in the countryside. Um, but, uh, you know, DJs like Danny Rampling, Oakenfold, Paul Oakenfold, Nikki Holloway, Andy Weatherall, our old friend and, and former, uh, one of the early, early uh, brother, brother, brother guests, um, you know, are all hanging on the beach in Ibiza and saying, well, why don't we, you know, why don't we take this sound that emanated from Detroit, uh, Acid House or House Music, um, made its way through Europe and then back to Ibiza and then was carried in, in briefcases uh, full of empty vials uh, back to clubs in England where the rave was given uh, birth uh, or to where the... Or, uh, yeah, I lost my sense. Well, usually when you're in this state, you, you lose your sense of place in a sentence. <laughs> um, but I love corduroy. Um, and so Chicago House gets sort of reprocessed through Europe and brought back to England, where ecstasy where it lost some of its sort of. Uh, what, but that's, I mean, that process of going back through Europe. I think you know, sort of, sort of um, Eurovision song contested some of the uh, more soften abstract the industrial sounds. Of, yeah, I think it's soften the edges, and also, you know, this is you know, in you know, really important to the the birth of this particular scene. It, it then gets adopted by bands who love ecstasy in equal measures with clubbing. <laughs> Uh, dancing and other things, but are first and foremost, you know, kind of guitar bands influenced by the Smiths and the Fall and you know the the mid, you know the Mancunians that preceded them. So it gets you know all sort of funneled into um, you know this uh, uh, you know, mortar and pestle and crushed together and comes out as what ultimately is. <laughs> And insufflated by people across the country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, during, so the, during this time, you know, the rave is born. And the rave is, you know, it's sort of a tossed around term at this point. It's kind of lost its, its um, you know, its original meaning. But the rave was a, it was sort of an underground, non-commissioned party that was spread word of mouth through channels. This is obviously pre-internet, pre-email, pre-a lot of things. And so, you know, you sort of heard about it on the street or it was rumored or there were, you know, some flyers that, that came around. But you, uh, you know, either you purchased tickets or the party was free. Usually you purchase tickets. And, you know, you found out the day of or the day, you know, before where this thing was going to be. And you sort of had to trust the fact that it was going to happen, that it wasn't just a, a sham. And, um, you know, whether it was the, uh, um, you know, the... Uh, Cited somewhere in a field in Hampshire uh, from Pulp's uh, Ease and Whiz, sort of for Ease and Whiz, or, you know, an airplane hangar, an abandoned factory, someplace where somebody could set up uh, for this kind of large-scale dance party and then somebody could set up a sound system and DJ. Um, There was a lot, a lot, a lot of ecstasy going around at the time, and thusly, um, this was dubbed the second summer of love, uh, very sort of back to hippiedom, back to communal living, back to peace. Um, everyone was in a good mood. Everyone was um, sucking also on ice pops the, and, and yeah, make, the, yeah. The second summer of can I please touch your face? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> you're so pretty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, well, so it's interesting though. I mean, we're talking about a bunch of guitar rock bands that um, were really 
weaned on this uh, this period of um, dance music, though. Well, and that is kind of unusual, right? Well, yeah. Well, what it was was, uh, you know, they were weaned on on guitar music. They were weaned on, you know, Joy Division and, and Smiths and The Fall and, you know, you know glam rock and, and all the things that came. And The Beatles. There was always, there's always a Beatles fascination in every band in England. What it was was they got into dance music and then they sort of uh, were able to meld this dance music with the sort of throwback hippie music uh, and straight-ahead guitar pop that they had, you know, grown up on. And it became this, you know, strange alchemy, but it worked. And even the bands that are sort of within this, you know, very, very small time frame and and, um, sub-genre, you know, they don't necessarily have a ton in common besides being good-time party music. I mean, the Stone Roses don't sound like the Happy Mondays. Um, no, but they sound more alike than they sound different to somebody who's 25 or 30 years past it. Yeah. I mean, the Charlatans were, you know, very much a sort of retro band. They they came from Birmingham, uh, Birmingham to Manchester. And Spiral Carpets were just straight up a shitty band that, uh, you know, were lucky enough to, to hop on uh, the bandwagon. Although they did have a pretty good uh, guitar tech named Noel Gallagher. Um and, uh, you know, the 808 State was much more sort of straight-ahead dance. You know, they were much more dance-oriented. And a guy called Gerald uh, was, <laughs> was sort of the forgotten... Um, Sorry, you know, is that a band name? It, it was a guy called Gerald. <laughs> um, oh. Who actually, uh, you know, uh, came from the scene. And um, made, I think he was the first guy to have a number one with this sort of... Uh, type of with this type of music, but um, yeah, I mean the Stone Roses were, you know, a, a psychedelic rock band that had, you know, house elements that had, uh, a, you know, sort of rhythm section and polyrhythms that that you know spoke to more of a of a dance. Um, yeah, it was like, you know, it was it was the first kind of rock music in a while that was made to dance to if that makes sense. And they, um, you know, part and parcel with this, um, this whole scene was a, was a sort of, uh, revolution in fashion, albeit somewhat regrettable, somewhat cool. Um, everybody, I you know, I was in England at this time, everybody was dressing exactly the same. It was really funny. And they referred to it as baggy fashion. And part of it was utility. I mean, part of it was the fact that you sweat your ass off on ecstasy and you dehydrate like crazy. So you wore kind of loose-fitting, baggy clothes, and that became, you know, the rebirth of, of the uh, flair or bell-bottom. And, um, you know, but and these, like, boater hats that became popular all of a sudden. So everybody you're seawalking oh, around at this point. I've never seen, I, like, when I went to the uh, Stone Roses a couple of years ago, um, I have I have never seen more fully grown men in bucket hats in my entire life. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well, man, that's a bad luck. <laughs> it is unless you invent it. Um, you know, it's sort of uh, the pale imitation club. I mean, it, you know, we were uh, talking about the Jeremy and I were talking about this yesterday. Where you know, there's the you know, the the, uh, the ones we cite all the time are the sort of Quentin Tarantino and Pearl Jam. You know. Eddie Vedder starts singing. Everybody starts singing like Eddie Vedder. Nobody can quite sing like Eddie Vedder. You know, Quentin Tarantino, 
uh, writes a movie, everybody starts writing like Quentin Tarantino, and nobody writes like Quentin Tarantino. It's a really bad right. thing. I would. I'll give. I'll give. Alan I'm, I'm going to go ahead Rennie and say that Quentin. Um, you know, the, a pass for wearing the bucket hat originally, but everybody else. Well, maybe not. Yeah, I I, uh, I think that and the, the sort of um, the resuscitation of the um, smiley face logo and uh, from from the late 1960s, which really I guess was just a, a direct nod to, and I, I don't think we can stress this enough, the drug culture, right? Like, I mean, that there really was a sort of um, uh, a recognition at the time, I guess, that, that this was sort of the first time since the late 60s, early 70s, um, when, you know, that level of sort of carefree, uh, you know, drug taking was, was sort of so welcome and so um, uh, sewn into the fabric of the scene. Oh, and it was. It was actually, there's not really an exaggeration here. It sewn, was, it sewn into the lining of your jacket. Um, <laughs> exactly, into the lining of your, like, zipped up uh, North Face parka. Kangol or, yeah. And what, uh, you know, yeah, you can't, really, you can't really stress it enough, but it was really, I mean, it also sort of, and a larger signifier, it was the first time England was having a good time in a really long time. Um, it was Since like the 18th century or something. Uh, well, some people were, but yeah, not most, um, <laughs> you know, um, but you know, I mean, even, even citing the bands that influence these guys, I mean, Joy Division and the Smiths and the Fall, it's not exactly like, oh, I know what's going to come next. Party music. Um, <laughs> it, it, so it was really, you know, sort of, uh, you know, there was, uh, they, you know, taking the elements of those bands that were great. I mean, the Smiths do have upbeat tracks. It's just that Morrissey sings them and then they automatically become downers. And, um, so they were, you know, John Squire is very much the, um, or John Squire, the guitarist for Stone Roses and, um, you know, the rhythm section of Stone Roses is phenomenal. Um, but they're playing this sort of, you know, like I said, upbeat polyrhythmic kind of thing. And John Squire, the guitar player, is playing, you know, the next version of Johnny Marr stuff. I mean, it's, you know, obviously very influenced by Johnny Marr. And, um, and, and equal parts, I think, influenced by the, the sort of uh, druggy high schoolers fascination with guitar effects that, that really sort of started to emerge, um, you know, in the, in the super fuzzed out. 1970s. So. I mean, he's a he's a noodler. I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of bedroom like. There are a lot of six and seven minute songs on there. Totally, <laughs> but they they have these sort of, you know, I mean, from the Acid House, they have this you know rhythm rhythm and and you know backbeat that um, you know the uh, Alan Wren, uh, who's the drummer for or Rennie, who's the drummer for the Stone Roses, is a wildly underappreciated. Musician, yeah. I think no, the, guy, the guy's a metronome, and the and like it really great at sort of injecting swing into the music in a way that like um, you know that really does get people's feet moving. Well, well he's, so he's the sort of I mean, I, and I'll stop talking about him after this, but I mean, he's got that sort of um, you know uh, how Blaine kind of thing where you don't see the work, you don't see him like you know Tommy leeing it up, like doing acrobatics in his uh, in his chair. He is the most efficient. Um, you know, in fast drummer I've seen, you know, he doesn't look like he's breaking a sweat, which is, you know, you know, part of what I think makes 
um, you know, what establishes, you know, him as an excellent drummer. He is playing a lot of different parts, and it basically doesn't look like there's any effort involved. In fact, I remember seeing the Stone Roses documentary, which is fantastic, called Made of Stone, where somebody sort of offhandedly says, oh, yeah, uh, Alan Wren, not only the best drummer in England, uh, by far the best guitarist and the best bass player, too. Nice. So he really does have a feel for how the different parts fit together, which, I mean, you know, is, is sort of essential to any uh, any kind of danceable music. Um, you know, the the sloppiness won't necessarily um, suffice in a way that it does in, in punk. Uh, it's it's really, it's got to be tight, um, and, and, you know, you've got to be able to sort of feel that rhythm. Not a power um, well, player, yeah. So I, I thought maybe we could take a break and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll dive into more detail into the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays since, uh, since I know those are two of your favorites. Sounds good. Brother, brother, brother. For those of you who are not too zoned out uh, to uh, after after listening to Fool's Gold, um, to, uh, to to come back and, and join us. Sort of um, try and center your thoughts, uh, bring your thoughts inside. Uh, there we go. And um, and Wyndham, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, about some of the albums that, that the Happy Mondays and uh, Stone Roses put out in particular, because these are these are a handful of classics, right? <laughs> Is that jacket velvet, man? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think so. And and actually, Valor, Let's be honest. <laughs> the, um, the the British public uh, may overvalue um, in things in in real time, but I think in uh, perpetuity or in you know retrospect, the, they you know they've held on to these records um, you know very very tightly and very uh, you know they're still very popular. You still you know, hear I, Stone Roses everywhere. Go ahead. I would say it's interesting that it it isn't. I, I, my experience, like I came to this stuff really because you um, you put it in front of me, but I, I don't know that I would have otherwise uh, growing up in the states and in, in the um, in the 2000s. I just it wasn't it wasn't part of that sort of like steady diet of indie rock that you get um, here as as you know the the sort of foundational um, bands from the 1980s and you know groups like Sonic Youth or um, 1990s, uh, as it as you know, um, Dino Junior started to get a little bit more acclaim or pavement or, um, you know, it, it's uh, 
it, it really was sort of a separate, it's, its own thing entirely. And I don't know that they have all that much in common with um, the sort of Pixies era of American indie rock, do they? Not really. I mean, it, it, there's some, I mean, the fact that they're guitar-driven, yes, but um, I, you know, this is where I think the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays kind of veer in, in different directions. They're always lumped together because of the time and place. Um, but when you think about, yeah, I don't think and they had the same dealer. Yeah, exactly. Who was in Happy Mondays. Um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, this was sort of a, you know, it, for most people in this, in America, they were, you know, this is sort of, oh my, yeah, yeah, I remember that album. It was good. Or, you know, I remember Step On. Um, that song was huge in 1990. Um, but it really doesn't have the, the lasting power it has in England. It's it's sort of a cultural moment that, that people still uh, reflect really fondly back on. And, I mean, the Stone Roses album, debut album, was voted the number two record of all time in the NME. I mean, it's that it's got that kind of cultural import over there. Um, Happy Mondays uh, were kind of, they're a great story. Um, again, they were a, a you know, a Tony Wilson-managed uh, band, uh, discovered and managed. Uh, discovered the Stone Road. I mean, discovered the Happy Mondays when they came in last place in a Battle of the Bands competition in Manchester, and were signed immediately, which I think is great and perfect. Uh, perfectly encapsulates uh, the band's history. They were, they got where like you know a lot of punk bands and things get away on attitude. These guys got away on attitude in a completely different way, and their attitude was fuck it. Let's party, you know, and, um, you know, just hordes of adoring fans. I mean, their their albums are good, but I still can't figure out, even as a fan of theirs, what drew everybody to them. It's it's what Jeremy, you know, like what Jeremy always says about In the Airplane Over the Sea. He's like, I, I keep listening to that album and I keep thinking nobody else will like it but me. And, you know, I feel like the Happy Mondays, like, they had some really, really major backing. Um... And I'm not 100% sure what everybody saw in common or whether they just, whether it truly is just a vibe that, um, you know, travels with this band. I mean, their first album came out in 87. It's uh, Squirrel and G-Men, 24-Hour Party People, Plastic Face, Can't Smile, White Out. Um, Great name. Yeah, real catchy. No, it's a terrible name for an album. <laughs> I, I, like, I, can't, I can never remember that. I always remember, like, Squirrel Men or... Squirrel and the G-Man, yeah. Yeah, but... That's about as far as I get. But, like, uh, question, are we not men? Answer, we are Devo. Uh, It was produced by John Cale. Um, Not who I would have associated... I mean, John Cale has a sort of... A Velvet Underground fan. Yeah. Um, But, you know, John Cale has a sort of classical background and and is sort of... I mean, he was a very avant-garde musician and and really appreciated... Had the same dealer. Absolutely, probably. (laughs) Um, Second album was Bummed. Um... Third album, Pills, Thrills, and Belly Aches, is 1990, and that was Paul Oakenfold producing. And then, um, you know, they, they ended up with Yes, Please, which is a, a shit show of an album produced by Chris Franz and T- Tina Weymouth uh, of The Talking Heads. And it, it completely bankrupted uh, Factory Records, ultimately. They sent them to Barbados to get them off of heroin, I believe, and they found crack. And destroyed everything <laughs> in their path, including Eddie Grant's studio in, in Barbados. I think they barely got out. Um, but that said, there was there had to be something about this band. I mean, the fact that they had their drug dealer on stage in the band as a dancer um, is just, I guess, 
the easiest way to explain what made them so popular, but not not. I'd like to know when when British managers are finally going to realize that if you're trying to get your guys off drugs, sending them to America is never the option. Well, Barbados like, is never, it's never the solution. Yeah, yeah exactly. Barbados, but I mean, a, it's kind of lawless, and it's real close to South America. Yeah, um, no, I'm not sure that that's the way to go. It's it is pretty funny. Um, Send them to like. Belgium or Switzerland or something. Well, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, hey, Bowie got straight in in uh, Berlin, but um, you know, I think that was just Bowie is just a magical creature. Um, but yeah, uh, so the Happy Mondays, you know, turn through these albums. They have these, they have hits. They had a fairly significant hit in America with Stefan, and uh, again, it's a band that that does have a great, you know, they they have they're good players, they're fun. They have Rowetta singing backup, which is always the secret weapon for all British bands, as we know, is having a gigantic voice to back up the guy who can't sing at all in front. Um, but, you know, they, they came up with some classic grooves and some fun songs. But, I mean, my God, Sean Ryder cannot sing or even talk uh, <laughs> in most of these. I mean, it's, it's truly just a miracle. And he's, he's hard to look at. Um, he's in our, you know, he's, you know, and dressed somehow, like a fucking, dressed literally <laughs> like a clown. <laughs> somehow everybody looked at him and went, he's a fucking genius. And I think it's, <laughs> you know, there must be something to it because it, it, I mean, it's infectious and it's, uh, it's pretty funny. I mean, uh, you know, anyway, they, they, uh, you know, like I said, they had their drug dealer on stage and they became a cultural juggernaut. They came, I remember they toured the U.S., which was just a disaster, but it was also awesome because I think the same people went to every show, and it was the same bunch of guys from England who flew over for the summer and just hitched around the country and went to every show and took a ton of drugs and are now somewhere between a you know hospitalization and, and disability. But um, I don't know. It, they were a fun band, and I keep saying that, but... Uh, uh, meanwhile, you know, the Stone Roses record comes out in 89, doesn't really get super popular until the summer of 90, but then explodes. And that, again, like I said, one of the... Did this, I mean, which was more popular? Stone Roses' album was more popular. The Happy Mondays as a cultural phenomenon were more... Right, like as were, a Grateful Dead of Ecstasy bands. That's exactly what they were in England. They were the Grateful yeah. Dead of Ecstasy. Um, which explains too, like if you play the Happy Mondays for people who aren't on ecstasy, much the same as if you play the Grateful Dead for people who aren't fucked up on something, um, there is, you know, there's, there is a language that you're not hearing that is there. Right. No, I, that that makes um, that makes a fair amount of sense. The Stone Roses were more sort of traditional uh, in in terms of their approach or their yeah their their sort of. Um, uh, their style, I think. I certainly have, I feel that way, and it's something that I can throw on and listen to and enjoy, you know, at any point. Whereas um, Happy Mondays is, uh, I would say, I I tend to go cherry picking singles um, that make their way onto Bob playlists. Yeah, exactly. Um, Kinky a little Afro. bit. Um, yeah, God, those are all such bad names. Um, <laughs> but in any event, <laughs> um, somehow they got away with it. So the Stone Roses, yeah, you were saying. I mean, let's 
walk through sort of their most significant contributions well, problem, uh, briefly. I would say that, you know, I mean, and, and this isn't an, uh, an easy way to end this conversation, is that the demise of the scene came in a two-pronged uh, issue. One, the Stone Roses recorded their first album on Silvertone Records, their debut. People regarded it as near flawless. It is a great album. I think it stands up. With, as with a lot of 80s stuff, the production I wish was different. But the songs are really good. The band is, is you know, clicking full steam. They've got, you know, three great musicians and, you know, in retrospect, a better singer than I recall. Also, you know, uh, Rennie being the fat, you know, uh, the best drummer, guitarist, and bass player uh, around was also a great um, harmony singer. And so, you know, the songs have like a lighter edge, you know, than I thought they did at the time. I thought, um, they feel much lighter now than they did uh, back when they were coming out. But, you know, and that stuff is still listenable and danceable. And, you know, Fool's Gold is still a great song. One Love is still a great song. Um, Made of Stone, and, you know, they're all really Waterfall, Elephant Stone. They're, they were all major hits that summer in 1990, and they're all still, they all still sound really good to me. Happy Mondays. Uh, but, the, okay, so the problem with the Stone Roses is that they run into a contract snag um, obviously, uh, on an independent label, they become the biggest band in England. The independent label does not want to release them from their contract so that they can move on to bigger, better things. They quibble about, I forget, a buyout clause or something. But anyway, they're not able to follow up um, their debut album. They get um, stranded, yeah. For six years. And six years of sitting on the shelf is a major amount of time for any band but particularly in England with its you know sort of fickle sense of, of fashion um, you know by the time the second Stone Roses album came out A it could never be as good as um, the six years uh, that it took to make it and you know two things people had kind of moved on it was a pretty good record it's not it's not very well, if good you, if you think about the the environment that we're describing here one that's very conducive to 19 and 20 year olds having a fabulous time um that's a little different when you've like been in the workforce for five years yeah. and you're you know 26 you, it's difficult to expect the same people to come back out yeah um, it's, you know temping they, and they age out of the yeah exactly <laughs> they age out of the bracket a little bit absolutely but also you know i mean they, they um you know they uh, well, I'll talk about this in a sec, but uh, then so Happy Mondays go to Barbados. They bankrupt the company. They come back with a shitty album that you know they they've just done too many drugs at this point, and and it shows. It's, it's, they mailed it in the album. It's not you know nobody's invested in it. Everybody's invested in their own personal habit at that point, and the the whole infrastructure falls apart. So. Stone Roses are left high and dry and unable to record. Happy Mondays are unable to record for different reasons. The scene kind of fizzles out. Um, but there is, you know, one sort of uh, uh, common denominator, and that is a band called Blur that comes out with an incredibly Manchester or Manchester influenced record called Leisure in 1991. Um, you know, it, it, they're very much to you know, trying to be of that scene, which is... They are know, the they, progeny of this. That they don't realize is dying. They take a couple years off after that, come back, and really in concert with another Manchester band called Oasis, um, start the Britpop movement in 1994, and the rest is history. 
Manchester is gone, but not forgotten. Well, that's a wonderful story. Let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back with the top 46,870 10 songs of all time. And what are you listening to? Brother, brother, brother. Today we've been talking all about Madchester uh, and what little Wyndham remembers from 1989 and 1990. I did tell um, you one story I forgot to tell. Oh, well, by all means. Um, I took off. I was in college in Amherst, Massachusetts, and I went to a party. And I went over to England for a party with friends, and I didn't come back. And I didn't come back, and I didn't come back, and I came back, this was in the middle of the school year, came back at the end of the semester to find out the unlikely uh, problem that I had, which was that ordinarily in my school it was big enough that you weren't really noticed if you went absent, and uh, you come back, you take the finals, and you're good. But I had missed eight pop quizzes in a class that I was taking, so I made up a story about how I had this new younger brother named Christian, and he lived in Washington, D.C., and every weekend I had to go and take care of him, and it was exhausting. And if I didn't take care of him, we would lose custody of him, and it was crushing. (laughs) And by the end of the story that I was telling, my teacher was hugging me and crying. And (laughs) meanwhile, I had been in an airplane hangar and somewhere in the middle of the country in England... uh, taking a lot of ecstasy. So, anyway, thank you, Christian, for saving my uh, collegiate career. Absolutely. And as a one-year-old. I mean, that. how, how advanced is that? That's a, that's a smart kid. So, I mean, thank you. some people are running before they could walk. Um, exactly. Well, uh, with that, I think, uh, what, what are you listening to now? Um, I'm listening to, well, first things first, I am uh, reading... Um, Matthew Cutter's The Closer You Are, uh, the Robert Pollard and Guided by Voices, authorized and comprehensive biography, and it's really fun to read, and we are having Matthew on the show uh, probably the next episode, so very much looking forward to 
um, having him on, but also really, really enjoying this book. And when it comes, I have an advanced copy, so when it comes out, um, I believe on August 21st, buy it, read it, devour it, especially if you're a GBV fan. Um, but also I was thinking of some people that I know who may not even know who GBV is and just grew up in Ohio who would really, really appreciate this book as well, just for its depiction of, um, of, of Ohio in the 80s. It's pretty fun. Excellent. Um, well, I was going to uh, rep a – you know, it's funny. I, I've gone through um, – uh, well, won a show, John Adams on HBO, which was um, – you know, it was worth digging out of the vault, actually. Um, this was a, a sort of miniature U.S. history bender uh, last weekend. Rewatched that and rewatched. Um, is that Paul Giamatti? Is it Jack? is, and, and Laura Linney, yeah. Oh, wow. um, and actually, a lot of familiar faces you would recognize uh, subsequent to that um, who have been, you know, sort of um, stalwarts of, of HBO series since then. Uh, and I realized, actually, going, you know, Going back a decade or so, um, and sort of looking at the, uh, the the sort of upstart talent that they're um, promoting, you realize how good their casting people are or their casting team oh, yeah. is. Um, but uh, but that and Lincoln, um, and actually, you know, I, I was I think looking around for um, a, a better, brighter, more optimistic time in American politics. Um, so I, I went with the civil war, uh, <laughs> and the revolutionary war, um, where, you know, at least it, people thought things were going to get better eventually. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the tweets you know, were much more articulate back then. <laughs> yeah, they certainly were. Um, but I have to say, so in particular, like looking at Lincoln, I mean, that is one of the best character studies um I, I think i can i can name uh and I, i'm sure you'll have a few more up your sleeve but really that's one of the um one of the finest bits of acting that i think uh you know we'll we'll see in in sort of in a generation or um and and certainly deserves the credit that it got so it's worth going back and checking out if you haven't seen it in a while i have it not. really does stand up i have not i was uh i was just thinking of what ken burns is the Trump administration is going to look like um, holy shit know, going back to like the Civil War where it's just like dear Mavis the well he might be the only guy <laughs> dear Vlad um, it's, like, yes. it's like you are dumb exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point <laughs> Sad. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure what his treatment of that subject's going to be. But, I can't um, wait. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's going to be pretty awesome. Um, well, uh, let's see. I, I can I going to go ahead and, and toss you, a song. You and add a song because then I'm going to then I'm going to put pants on and go to get my hair cut. Oh, nice. Um, I'm going to add "Follow You Around" by Perling Hiss. Interesting. Ah, I yeah. saw them a few years ago. They were good. They are good. Uh, I'm going to go more old school and classic, and uh, I don't believe this is on there yet. It seems like an omission. Um, that's that's when I reach for my revolver by Mission of Burma. That's one of my favorites. One of my favorites. I can't believe it's gone this long. Yeah. I mean, we say that every week about one of the songs that we have. <laughs> <That's had, true. laughs> um, oh, well. So uh, anyway, this is uh, just another another installation on this phenomenal playlist. We hope you'll check it out uh, at the Brother Pod on Spotify. Um, and go get your pants on and get your hair cut. I will see you later. <laughs> get your pants on. Get your hair cut. <laughs> All right. Later. Thanks.
I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.